Shema Yisrael. Welcome to the broadcast outreach of Living God Ministries with Aaron Budgen. Aaron discovered Jesus is his Messiah while preparing to be a rabbi. He now teaches for several organizations and is the teaching pastor for Living God Ministries. Strongly distinguishing between the Old and New Covenants, Aaron presents the scriptures from a Judaic and historical frame of reference. Join Aaron now as he reveals the reality foreshadowed and the new life we can now experience because of what the Lord Jesus accomplished for us. In Acts chapter 6 and Acts chapter 7, we have the description of Stephen, Stephen who is persecuted by the synagogue of the freedmen. The synagogue of the freedmen were Gentiles who had converted to Judaism and they decided to persecute Stephen because of what Stephen believed and because of what he taught. Now, as I was mentioning in the previous broadcast, it's very interesting to observe that the freedmen apparently did not have any conflict with any of the other disciples or any of the other apostles, but instead they had a conflict with Stephen, which gives me the impression that perhaps Stephen was teaching something that was slightly different, slightly unique, from what the other disciples and the other apostles were publicly teaching, especially because after the freedmen succeeded in being able to murder Stephen, they did not continue to murder other apostles or other disciples in light of their success with murdering Stephen. But just before Stephen was murdered, he did give his testimony before the council with regards to what he believed. And he gave a very important conclusion that we do have to pay attention to, and that was given in Acts chapter 7, verse 51 through 53. In Acts chapter 7, beginning in verse 51, Stephen said, You men who are stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears are always resisting the Holy Spirit. You are doing just as your fathers did. Which one of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? They killed those who had previously announced the coming of the righteous one, whose betrayers and murderers you have now become. You who received the law as ordained by angels and yet did not keep it. This is a very important accusation that he tells them that they had received the law, they had received the law of Moses, and yet they do not keep it. Which is to say that he is enforcing the law. He is enforcing that for them. He is telling them that they should be keeping it, that they should be living in obedience to it, especially if they claim that they're supposed to, especially if they're going to believe Moses, they most certainly should be living a life in obedience to the law. Now, this defense is very important, especially in light of the accusation. The accusation was described in Acts chapter 6, beginning in verse 13, where it says that they put forward false witnesses who said this man incessantly speaks against this holy place and the law. Well, his defense gives a clear indication that he was not speaking against the law or the holy place, that being the temple, that he would be encouraging them to actually live in obedience to it, but making the accusation that it was they who were not living in obedience to the Mosaic law, not him, but it was them who were actually speaking against the Mosaic law and against the holy place because of their lack of obedience, and yet they were deceiving people into thinking that they were being obedient, considering themselves and considering others. They were deceiving themselves and they were deceiving others with regards to this. So then continuing on in Acts chapter 6 verse 14, they said, 
For we have heard him say that this Nazarene, Jesus, will destroy this place and alter the customs which Moses handed down to us. Well, this is a prophetic description of what the Lord Jesus would eventually do, and technically this is correct. Now, just because he is making a prophetic prediction with regards to what would happen in the future, that is not cause for him to be brought forward to the council and be convicted of some crime of some sorts. This is no crime to prophesy such a thing. If this was an official prophecy, then the way that they should handle this is that they should document it and they should wait until it would come to pass. And if it did come to pass, then Stephen would be acknowledged and recognized as a prophet. And if it did not come to pass, then he would not be recognized as a prophet. Now, of course, he did not say exactly when the Lord Jesus would return. He certainly would not know. And so given that, a prophecy such as this should certainly not be taken very seriously, especially in the context of the laws of a prophet. But obviously they were not believing in the law of Moses as they should have been beforehand, and so those laws specific in the law of Moses that relate to this concern, they certainly would not necessarily be needing to obey or be wanting to obey anyway. But the point is, is that in verse 14, they said that they heard him say that this Nazarene Jesus would destroy the place and alter the customs. Well, technically, he would do that in the future. That's for certain. But in addition to that, he would also do that in a certain way right now. And the reason why I say that is that if you consider the new covenant that has gone into effect, for those who would receive the new covenant and believe in the Lord Jesus in the context of what he has actually accomplished for us, for those who would believe that, for those who would receive that, they would put aside the law of Moses and the customs and the holy place because those things would be obsolete in a believer's life. If you consider the forgiveness of sins, for example, which is a very important subject, if a person recognizes that their sins are no longer being held against them because of what the Lord Jesus did for them, If a person will believe that, will recognize that truth and rest in the reality of that truth, if a person will do that, then they should be living their life in accordance with that truth, which means this, and that is that if the Lord your God does not hold your sins against you anymore, then no matter what law you violate, those sins are not going to be held against you anymore. So as a result, the law becomes of no effect, it becomes of no purpose, it becomes of no value, in that sense, that there is no way that your sins will be held against you, and so technically the law has become obsolete. Now, in another sense as well, is that we are now being guided individually and personally by the Holy Spirit and dwelling within us. And so if that is the case, then there is no need, there is no reason for us to be guided personally and individually by the law that describes what is good and evil, which is a very important solution, especially in contrast with the problem that was described in the Garden of Eden, that it was the devil who said that if you only knew what was good and evil, then you could live as God intended you to live. But instead, the Lord our God has shown us very clearly, especially through the history that we have given to us in the nation of Israel in the Old Testament, that history clearly describes that we do not function, we cannot function, we never will function in accordance with what is good and evil. And so to put it aside, because of the forgiveness that we have received is not a problem, it is actually a solution to the demonic deception that was given to Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. We have a fulfillment that has been given to us in the New Covenant, 
that enables us to experience a new dynamic living relationship with the living God that puts these things aside. And so we are no longer to be preoccupied with the law that defines what is good and evil. We are no longer to be preoccupied with customs or other ways of living in order to hope that we may live a life that is worthy of a relationship with our God. We don't live that way. And also the holy place, that being the temple, no longer has any value to us as believers because there is no longer any sacrifice for any sin. There's no longer any sacrifice to esteem or obtain or sustain fellowship with God. And so there's no need for the temple infrastructure. There's no need for that anymore. The Lord Jesus will actually bring all of this to an end. But presently, he does need it in effect for those who do not believe in him with hopes that the eventual conclusion of a person trying to live a life that they cannot live would be to recognize that they cannot live a life in accordance with the holy place, in accordance with the customs, in accordance with the Mosaic law, that they would eventually come to the point of recognizing that they have no hope outside of the grace and mercy of God. That's a very important reality that those who are lost need to get in touch with, need to get in touch with, and need to understand so that they can receive the grace and mercy of God and enter into the new covenant that the Lord Jesus has established for us. This is a very important reality. But eventually, this, of course, will come to an end as well. And when this happens, this earth will definitely come to an end. And the only thing that will remain is the kingdom of heaven and those who are a part of it. As time went on, sure enough, the temple was destroyed. It was destroyed a few years later, and so the holy place was technically taken away from them before the Lord Jesus even returned. The manners and the customs were things that they could take with them, but with regards to the law of Moses, they could only take some of the law of Moses with them because they no longer had the religious the economic, the societal infrastructure that they once had beforehand, before the Romans went in and destroyed everything. The Romans did go in and invade Jerusalem in 70 AD, and when that took place, the temple infrastructure was removed from them. The holy place was removed from them. The religious infrastructure was taken away. The Levitical priesthood was taken away. When all of that occurred, they found themselves in a situation that is described here in Acts chapter 6, verse 14, where they said, For we have heard him say that this Nazarene Jesus will destroy this place and alter the customs which Moses handed down to us. Well, that happened by the Romans. The Lord Jesus didn't have to do that. I personally believe that from a prophetic point of view that this will occur later on when the temple is rebuilt in Jerusalem and the customs are reestablished. I do believe that that is a prophetic reality that will eventually take place. But back in 70 AD, this took place as well. And this is a very key point to see. And that is that all of this stuff was taken away from the religious Jew. And so even if they wanted to live in obedience to the Mosaic law, they couldn't do it. They haven't been able to do it because they no longer have the religious, societal, economic infrastructure that they once had before. All of that was taken away, and so technically they should recognize that they have no alternative but the grace and mercy of God because they cannot live in accordance with the law. Unfortunately, they have found ways of explaining this away in order to convince themselves that they still have the means of being right with God. And that is an unfortunate reality, but that's what people do. They do what they can with what they have. They will do the best they can with what they can do, not recognizing that even then it still is not enough. It still is not adequate. 
and the hope of one day being able to live in obedience to the Mosaic Law still is no hope at all because they still will not live in obedience to the law as was given. So as a result, they will, of course, consistently and continually live under the curse of God because that was what he promised when he gave the Mosaic Law, is that if you do not obey all of the commandments, you will be cursed. But until that is fully realized, the Lord our God is continually working with the nation of Israel, with the Jewish people, in order to accomplish his purposes. Now, what's very interesting is what happens after Stephen gives his testimony. After Stephen gives his testimony telling them that they were not living in obedience to the law themselves, they responded very aggressively, and this is described in Acts chapter 7, beginning in verse 54. In Acts chapter 7, verse 54, it says, Now when they heard this, they were cut to the quick, and they began gnashing their teeth in him. But being full of the Holy Spirit, he gazed intently into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, Behold, I see the heavens opened up and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. But they cried out with a loud voice and covered their ears and rushed at him with one impulse. When they had driven him out of the city, they began stoning him. And the witnesses laid aside their robes at the feet of a young man named Saul. They went on stoning Stephen as he called on the Lord and said, Lord, Jesus, receive my spirit. Then falling on his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. Having said this, he fell asleep. Now try to imagine the enormous implications of what is taking place here. First of all, these people just form a mob and they murder someone. Now that should be obvious to many people to show just how powerful religious pride can truly be, especially when confronted with a truth such as this. I mean, what was the big deal that he would be telling them that they were not living in obedience to the law that they claimed that they were living in obedience to? Why would that be such a problem? Why would somebody get so angry that they would be willing to murder somebody over that? Well, I sincerely believe that the reason why is because deep down inside, even though in many ways that person would not want to admit it, deep down inside they know full well that they are not living in obedience as they claim they are. That deep down inside they must know that. And so for someone to make an accusation such as this, such as what Stephen made, should stir within them a great deal of fear, fear of being exposed fear of somebody discovering that they are truly not living in obedience as they have been claiming that they have been living. And so given that fear, they would be willing to destroy someone, they would be willing to murder someone in order to take away that witness, in order to take away that testimony, in order to continue to hide from the truth and from the reality that they are not obedient to God. That's how determined a person can easily become in order to try and hide and try to deceive other people from this reality. This is a very real thing, and I think we should pay attention to this because as we engage with other people, we should be aware with regards to why they would be getting angry with us because of our testimony against them, making the accusation that they were not really as obedient as they claimed that they really were. But regardless of that, consider verse 60. In Acts chapter 7, verse 60, Stephen makes a very incredible proclamation. He says, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. Having said this, he fell asleep. For Stephen to say something as powerful as this, do not hold their sins against them, 
demonstrates an incredible amount of maturity in his life. For a person to say something like this, especially in the midst of the circumstances that he is finding himself being murdered in, for him to say something like this really is an expression of love and kindness and forgiveness that I believe only a mature believer in Christ Jesus could truly express and truly believe this with great conviction to be able to say this. I really believe that this is a clear example that Stephen matured quite a bit in his faith, probably well beyond what many of the other apostles and disciples ever really experienced in their own life. To say such a thing as this means that he would have had to understand the forgiveness that his God had given to him in light of his sin. What he is doing is he is forgiving someone of their sin that they are committing against him. For him to be able to present this kind of forgiveness, this kind of forgiveness, he would have had to receive this forgiveness from his God. He would have to really truly understand and rest in and trust in the reality that his God does not hold any of his sins against him anymore and that he has a full and complete relationship with his God that is eternally secure. He would have to truly understand the nature of the forgiveness that he already has that the Lord Jesus has given to him so that he would have forgiveness to give to someone else. Let me give an example. In accordance with the Old Covenant, the Lord Jesus expressed in the Sermon on the Mount that you are to forgive others or your heavenly Father will certainly not forgive you. However, in context with the New Covenant, as was expressed to the Apostle Paul in his letter to the Ephesians and his letter to the Colossians, he said very clearly that you are to forgive others as you have already been forgiven. And the differences between the two are very clear. The distinction is very obvious. You cannot live in both simultaneously. Either you forgive others in order to obtain God's forgiveness or you obtain God's forgiveness freely so that you have something to give others. You cannot do both. You have to choose one or the other. And to choose one, that which is under the Old Covenant, is to live a life of complete condemnation from your God towards you, because you will never be able to forgive everyone of their sins committed against you to the extent where you will be able to then obtain the forgiveness of God. Instead, we require our God to forgive us first, If he forgives us first and that forgiveness is complete without any conditions whatsoever, which he certainly did on the cross, if we understand that, then we have something that we can give to others freely, that forgiveness that we have received from our God. This is a very different way of life and very important. I did explain this in the series that I did on the Sermon on the Mount, and so I would like to encourage you to get a hold of that series and listen to it where I explain this subject in more detail. But here in this context, I would just like to exaggerate the point that Stephen obviously has matured quite a bit in his faith. He has really matured in his faith. You see, when the Lord Jesus died for the sins of the world, he completely forgave all sin of the entire world, of the entire history of humanity. He finally brought sin to an end by no longer holding our sins against us. When he did that, the scriptures tell us that he sat down at the right hand of God. He sat down in order to exaggerate the point that it truly is finished, that the sin issue between us and our God came to an end so that our God no longer holds any of our sins against us anymore, and he sits down. The Lord Jesus sat down at the right hand of the Father. But here, here in this example, here in Acts chapter 7, Stephen expresses 
the forgiveness that he has received from his God as he expresses that to others. He expresses that in the sense that he wants the Lord God to forgive them and not hold this sin against them of murdering him. He has also said very clearly earlier that he understands well what the purpose of the law is, that it is to be used for those who do not believe in the Lord Jesus, that they are to try and live in obedience so that they would eventually come to the end of themselves. And then in Acts chapter 6, he clearly explains that he understands how the law and how the holy place and how the customs would have an effect on a believer after they come to know the Lord Jesus as the Messiah, after they come to understand the forgiveness of God, he understood that it would no longer have any place in their lives. And so given all of this, what does the Lord Jesus do in response? When he recognized that a believer in him is about ready to be executed for his maturity in the faith, that's really what is taking place. What does he do? He stands up. In Acts chapter 7, verse 55, it says, But being full of the Holy Spirit, he gazed intently into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. He was standing at the right hand of God. He got up from his chair because he knew what was going to happen. He could see the faith of his brother Stephen, and he could see what was about to occur. And he recognized the true faith of Stephen, and so he stood up to greet him. He stood up to meet him, saying, Yes, yes, that's what I want to see. I want to see a man of God who believes in what I've done for him and recognizes the implications of what I have truly accomplished for him, and I'm going to stand up and welcome him home. That's what was taking place in Acts chapter 6 and in Acts chapter 7. This is a wonderful opportunity for us to see a disciple of the Lord Jesus mature in his faith, end his life here on earth, do so testifying of the truth of the Lord Jesus, and be welcomed into the kingdom of heaven by the Lord Jesus himself. And we all have the privilege of being welcomed in a very similar way. When we believe in the forgiveness of sins and we receive the restoration of the Holy Spirit within us to make us alive, to actually resurrect us from the dead, we become a born-again believer, a born-again child of God, and we become a member of the family of God, and we have a place in the kingdom of heaven. And my friend, I sincerely believe that when you pass from this life to the next, that the Lord Jesus is not going to be sitting down when you arrive that he's going to stand up and he's going to welcome you with open arms, being very excited with your arrival, very thrilled with who you are as a person. And he's going to welcome you and he's going to present you with a place that he has been making for you to be able to dwell in throughout all eternity, a place that you will have as a home that will never be taken away from you, and a place where you can enjoy the kingdom that he has available for you and you can enjoy a new life with him that will have no end. This I do believe, and I encourage you to trust in this reality as well. What kind of an effect would this have had on your life if you were there witnessing the death of Stephen? How would you have felt if you would have seen this take place? Would it be something that you would remember for the rest of your life, watching somebody be murdered right before you, and yet still testify of his belief even to the end? When considering this, consider the fact that the Apostle Paul was there to witness this event. And given that he was there to witness it, I suspect that he probably remembered this for the rest of his life. The Apostle Paul is first mentioned in Acts chapter 7, verse 58, 
where it says, When they had driven him out of the city, they began stoning him, and the witnesses laid aside their robes at the feet of a young man named Saul. Saul was the apostle Paul. His name was Saul before it was changed to Paul. And he was there to witness this event. Not only that, but he was there keeping track of everyone's clothing to make sure that they would be able to retrieve their robes when they were finished. He was there witnessing the event, and he was there giving his approval to the event. This is described further in Acts chapter 8, beginning in verse 1. In Acts chapter 8, verse 1, it says, Saul was in hearty agreement with putting him to death. And on that day a great persecution began against the church in Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Some devout men buried Stephen and made loud lamentation over him. But Saul began ravaging the church, entering house after house, and dragging off men and women, he put them in prison. Again, here it says in verse 1, this is Acts chapter 8, verse 1, that many people were scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria except the apostles. Why would it be that the apostles were not scattered throughout the regions? I sincerely believe that the reason why they were not scattered was only because they were not teaching things that were contrary to the synagogues in general. They were certainly teaching that Jesus was the Messiah, but as we continue to read, you're going to discover that they still believe that if you were Jewish, you were to live a life in obedience to the law of Moses. And so given that, there should be no reason for them to be persecuted. However, it appears that there were many others who went beyond that, especially Stephen, who recognized the implications of the forgiveness of sins and recognized that their life in Christ Jesus was not to be about living in obedience to the Mosaic Law, but it was to be a life of trust and faith and belief and being thankful for what the Lord Jesus had already done for them. This is what I see here in the Scriptures based on my understanding of the development of the early church and also seeing the maturity of people who were not the apostles, who were certainly subjecting themselves to the authority of the apostles. However, they were maturing in spite of the immaturity of the apostles. Now, having said that, it's important to recognize, especially in chapter 8, that the apostles did have a reasonably high degree of maturity in their faith. It's very clear as we read into Acts chapter 8 that they do have a good understanding of the basics of the gospel. What I'm referring to is with regards to what our life is to be like after we come to faith according to the gospel. How do we then live in our daily lives? And I sincerely believe that Stephen was deviating from what the apostles were teaching with regards to this subject. But I am out of time for this broadcast, and so I will continue into Acts chapter 8 in the next broadcast. You have been listening to the broadcast outreach of Living God Ministries. You can hear all of our programs for free through our radio archive at livinggodministries.net. That is, livinggodministries.net. Do help us develop new radio programs and continue broadcasting on this and other radio stations. Send your contributions to Living God Ministries, P.O. Box 38353, Colorado Springs, Colorado. 80937 or use the donation link on our website livinggodministries.net that is livinggodministries.net